So this morning we are continuing on with our summer teaching series that we've entitled Sent. Um, we are spending the summer working our way through the first half of the book of Acts in the New Testament. And the idea in this series is that this book uh, is united by a common theme, and indeed it's a theme that unites all of us in here as well. And that is that God doesn't just kind of gather us here together to sing some songs and have some nice thoughts and be together and to see folks and then to leave, but that we are gathered here together um, in order to be shaped and uh, for our hearts to be changed so that we can live lives of purpose and meaning sent out by God into the city of Austin, sent out by God on vacations, sent out by God to uh, different places around this country, around the world, and that we're aware of our purpose, that every day there is a purpose, which C.S. Lewis defines as joy. He says that knowing there's a purpose for your life is the difference uh, between people who have joy and those who don't. And so how does God send you out this day? How does God, what kind of life does God want you to live? How, what is your purpose for why you're here? That's like some of the questions we're asking in this series. And the scripture passage today is from Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 19. And I invite you now just to listen and open yourself uh, to God's word today. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask no matter who we are, how we walk in here today, that you would open our minds and our hearts that we might be shaped and formed, changed and transformed more and more into the people you created us to be. May this happen for us all today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story in Acts is the conversion of Saul, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, and this is a turning point in his life. 
It's a point where he is, is converted to being a follower of Jesus. His name is going to change from Saul to Paul, and he will become an apostle, one who has sent out many of the books that we read in the New Testament were written by this person, and this is the moment of his conversion. This is the moment where he is changed. This is where he is, he is sent in a new direction. He's not reshaped a little bit. He's not, here are some, a few suggestions about what to do. His life was moving one way, now it's moving another. Because Jesus invades his heart and his life. We want to talk some about these, this idea, these words of conversion or what we read in the book of John when Jesus describes it as being born again or born from above. This thing that happens to Saul here. And, and I want to warn you at the beginning that this sermon might be uh, a bit like drinking from a fire hose. And here's why. Um, whenever anybody is seminary and they preach their first sermon, you always have got to be careful because um, they have been storing up for this sermon for like five years, right? And they are like ready to go and they have been thinking about this and analyzing it. And when they preach their first sermon, it is just normally like an information download. Do you know what I mean? Just everything that, that is going on in their mind and hearts and has been for years. I have wrestled personally with this idea of conversion and being born again for many, many years, probably thought about this even more than is probably healthy, okay? And to understand that and understand why uh, this passage is something I wrestle with personally so much, I need you to understand a little bit about my story. Um, some parts of this, some of you may know, um, and some of you may be able to relate to this. Some of you may have a very different experience, and so I'm not trying to generalize for everybody here, but I need you to know what this stuff brings about in my mind and heart, okay? Because words like conversion and being born again, concepts like this are loaded terms for me. They're loaded terms for a lot of people, studies show in our culture. And the loaded term for me and the way that this works is that I kind of grew up in the Bible Belt. I grew up in, in Atlanta, in Georgia. And in my worldview growing up, there were sort of two categories of Christians, okay? The first category were people who used the term conversion and being born again a lot, okay? And they used it in a very particular way, and it meant a very narrowly defined idea. Where this stuff came about for me uh, personally was that I would go with my family, my mom and dad and my two brothers, to spend Thanksgivings. Almost every Thanksgiving, we would go spend with my dad's family in Augusta, Georgia, and at the end of, of Thanksgiving, the next day on Friday, we would go down for a big family reunion, like an hour and a half from Augusta, in a tiny little town called Waynesboro, Georgia. And Waynesboro, Georgia was a gathering point where I would get together with all these people I didn't know, who apparently were my family, uh, like second cousins and third cousins and great aunts and great uncles, all these people I never saw outside of for like two hours at Waynesboro on the years we went, and they would gather from all around South Georgia, and we would be in this little house, and there'd be like 50 or 60 of us there, and we would have like a day after Thanksgiving celebration. And those folks used the term born again a lot. Okay? They used it all the time. And they would use it in the same phrase around the table and around dinner as discussions that made me really uncomfortable. They were overtly racist, and it was very, very clear that, that, that they were. And they had a worldview where it was that they were good, born-again Christians in America, and that there were all these other people that were seeking to destroy their world. 
okay? There were a lot of others. There were a lot of thems that were out there. Um, and so there was racism that was a part of that. There was uh, talk and hatred about Catholics. There was talk and hatred about people who were Jewish. There was just this very angry, nasty, venomous way of looking at life, of us and them, that just, I couldn't understand it. I couldn't, I couldn't get it. And I remember one day at, this, at dinner when all these terms and all these things are being used and, and people were being talked about in, in awful ways, and one of my like, great uncles or somebody, I don't know, they said he was a great uncle, uh, somebody who was sitting next to me turned and looked at me and he was like, you're a city boy, you're from Atlanta, are you born again? And I remember thinking in that moment, if it makes me anything like you, that is the last thing in the world I want to be. I remember saying to my wife when we first met that there would never, ever be a way that I would be described as a born-again Christian because that term was so loaded for me and it meant so many negative things. The idea of conversion in these terms, just I, it was hard for me to handle, right? The other category of Christian, other than that, was kind of what I was raised in. And I think in lots of ways it was a reaction against that first category. So I was sort of raised in a church when we went that was kind of like going to the United Way on Sundays, right? That there was no talk about Jesus, there was no talk about conversion, there was no talk about anything spiritual. We never really prayed, you know, individually or were taught people how to pray. It was about how to be a good person. It was about how to have good values. It was about how to help homeless people. It was about, you know, this is kind of what you should do. And when I was a teenager, there was nothing unique about that, right? It's like, I can go hear that, about that anywhere. I can go here at a coffee shop. I can go to a poetry session. I can go to the United Way and, and hear about what it's like to help people. My parents quit fighting me after a while on, um, you have to go to church on Sundays. They quit making me, and I quickly just stopped going because there was nothing unique about that. I could go volunteer the United Way with homeless people on like Friday afternoon at four. I didn't have to wake up on Sunday morning for it, right? Now, I never did go volunteer at the United Way with homeless people. And again, I think it's one of the myths in our culture. Like, we can help people anywhere. We probably don't, but we could, right? But there was nothing unique about Christianity. That, and I think it was so much of like pulling away from that first category and kind of rebelling against it. Um, but there was nothing unique in that. I, I didn't go to church for years. I went to college uh, at a school called Davidson College in North Carolina. Um, it was a Presbyterian-affiliated college. It still is a Presbyterian-affiliated college. I didn't know that for my four years. Right? I have no idea what that means. As a Presbyterian minister, every year I get a list of like 100 colleges and universities in this country that are affiliated with the Presbyterian church. I have no idea what that means because it had no impact on my life for four years. And I contacted a bunch of my fraternity brothers uh, later on. It's like, did you know that there was this affiliation? None of them knew. So I don't know what that means when we say that we're affiliated with anybody, but it, that had no bearing on me. I had no sense of Christianity or faith or Jesus. It was not on my radar screen. And as some of you know, it wasn't until after college that I had an experience of the person of Jesus, where I had a moment of conversion. It took place uh, after I graduated when I went and lived in Japan for two years. Uh, I went and lived there and was teaching English in, uh, in a local school and was invited to go to a church. Uh, it was a church that was run by two Norwegian missionary women 
in, uh, in a little rural area of Japan, and it's called the Bunkyo Gospel Center. And I was going because there was another teacher, a woman from Ireland, on our program who was getting baptized. And some of you heard me say this before. Um, she was getting baptized, and she invited a bunch of her friends to come. I hadn't been in a church in years. And she was like, oh, I would love you to come. I'm getting baptized as a Christian. I'm like, I don't think you can. She was like, why not? I'm like, because you have to be a baby. And she was like, no, 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 you, you can get baptized as an adult. I'm like, no, I've been to church like five or six times, and you, I'm pretty certain they only do babies. She was like, well, this church, you can get baptized as an adult. I'm like, I don't think you can, but okay. So we showed up for church, and it was an incredible experience. And they didn't do any of the things there that we think about uh, a lot when we think about church. It, it wasn't well done. The transitions in worship weren't smooth. The music was not recording quality. But there was this raw, authentic power in this tiny little room that was just disarming to me and all of my walls of Christianity that were there, right? And there was something about, for me personally, that I had to get outside of the machine of American Christianity to even consider that there might be something spiritual in all of this. And seeing Donna McDowell's baptism that day changed my life. It, 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 it broke through every barrier I had. And I didn't become necessarily a Christian that day, but it started me on a journey where several months later I did. And I can remember that moment. I can remember, as Saul has here, the moment when I became aware of the person of Jesus and that he was real in my life. I remember where I was. I remember who else was in the room. I remember praying and asking God to become a part of my life, and I was scared to death to open my eyes because God had gone from a distant reality of God to the fact that he knew me and was in the room. And the power of that, the holy fear of that in my life made it that I didn't want to open my eyes because of what might be there. I was so aware of it. And I lament the fact that I've lost that awe and wonder a lot of times in the daily life of following Jesus. But that experience left me kind of feeling a little homeless as a Christian in America. Because on the one hand, even though I'd come to faith, I didn't necessarily hate people who were Catholic, which was my only experience of conversion and being born again. And yet I wasn't comfortable with church just being a place where we teach each other how to be good people. Because there's nothing unique in that. It was, and, and so it sent me on this journey of really like wrestling of like, what does this mean? What does it mean to talk about conversion? What does it mean to talk about being born again? What does it mean for the church? So I think about this stuff from my own journey way too much of what Saul experienced here. And there are four different things as we talk about this today that I would like to suggest ought to be a part of our conversation as a community of faith of what we think about a, a kind of theology of conversion and what that looks like. And we're going to quickly talk about them up here, um, and we're going to bring them up. Number one, that conversion is necessary. And I think that's important we start and claim. For some people, that conversion could be like what Saul has on the road to Damascus. It's like, uh, in a sense, what I had. This moment where it's like, I didn't believe and then I did. The moment where I can remember that day and that night and praying that prayer. I remember walking out of the house where I came to faith and looking up and down the street and thinking the world is different than how I walked into this house. I remember that 18 years ago vividly like it happened yesterday. Some people don't have that, and conversion experiences aren't like rated on by drama, right? That's not how it works. It's not like Saul's a 10, but mine was sort of a 3, because it's not this big dramatic thing. 
The point is, 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 it's got to be a part of our story where faith moves from that I just go to church or this is kind of what you do to be a good person or I want to raise my kids in the right values, where, you, where the person of Jesus becomes real to us, right? Where the person of Jesus becomes real, where we make a decision, maybe in a, in a public way, maybe just quietly with ourselves or with one or two people where we say, this is my faith. This is what I believe. It's not that I have complete understanding of this, but I'm following Jesus, See, the problem if we don't, the problem if we don't have a strong way of inviting people into this process of following Jesus and understanding that it's about conversion is that we're going to do what Saul did in this passage. And please hear me this, because this is really important. Saul in this passage, before he encounters Jesus, is doing everything that he believes is right. Okay? He's, he's following his traditions. He's following his culture. He's following how he was raised. He's being a good uh, Pharisee at the time. He's, he's standing for all the right things. Now, you and I look at it going, well, he was sort of rounding up Christians. That's not very good. From his worldview, he was doing exactly what he was taught to do. He's doing what he was trained to do. And you and I, every human being, operates in the exact same way unless we have a moment where we claim you are God and I'm not is that our default is we sort of see life the way we see it. And if we don't have a conversion moment, then all, all that faith is is just a reflection of what we already think. It's a reflection of the values that we already bring. And so there's a movement in our culture today of, of becoming spiritual and believing in kind of post-modernity and this, I, I'm a spiritual person, I believe in this, but I don't believe any religious system can capture God. Now, Part of that the church has to confess of, okay? Um, I'm not a believer in the, in the language of a lot of churches of like, we're in decline, but we're the faithful minority. That's rubbish, using a good British term. What that means is, when they say that, is that people are finding a narrative of what life's about that is more appealing than our narrative. And if that's the case, then we need to be aware and confess that and to see what's going on. The church has responsibility in that, but here's the danger in a world where we're spiritually alive, but God can't be captured by any religious system. The danger in that is that is code for I'm playing God. Now, that's not what people say, but think about it. Anne Lamont says it this way. She says that when we are spiritual in that way, God's going to love who we love. God's going to hate who we hate. God is going to vote the way we vote. God is simply going to be a projection of the values that we already have. That's what Saul's doing. He's just pursuing God as he had been trained. He's pursuing what was right and good. We will all do the same thing. And I don't know all of you, and I don't know everything about your life, but I am confident in saying none of you should be God. And I am quite confident that I should not be God either. If you have any questions about that, my wife is right here. You can ask her about all the different reasons I shouldn't be God. Conversion is necessary. We've got students who are going to fun in the Sunday, and that is what we are hoping for, that they would encounter Jesus, that would capture their hearts. If we abandon this, we're just abandoning ourselves to following our own version of righteousness. And that's a very, very dangerous and incomplete place to be. Secondly, conversion is also personal. The conversion is uh, in being invited into knowing God, the person of God, the person of Jesus. What is unique about our faith is that we are not following a set of doctrine, a set of religious rules. Christianity is not about memorizing rules and then who lives them out the most. Christianity is about following a person. It's, it's very different. 
And it's tricky. It's tricky when the person we're following rebelled against every religious system of his day. We have to admit that there's a tension in that when we try to set up a religious system following a person who was rebelling against religious systems of his day. But there's something wonderful and beautiful in that when we can enter into it because God is going to call us into unexpected places and to do unexpected things and to see life in unexpected ways. Saul has a paradigm of this is God and this is what's right. And all of a sudden, Jesus becomes a God whom he can know. And Jesus knows Saul. Becomes very personal. Friends, you and I were designed for relationship. That's where we find meaning. Relationship with God and relationship with other people. That's where meaning comes from in life. Is do we have relationship with others? And so God is, is calling us in these conversions to understand it's not about following doctrine or rules. It's not about teaching our kids values. That is not what Christianity is about. It is about opening ourselves up to the God who personally calls us and changes and transforms our life. No matter who you are, no matter who you are, that void that is in every single human being's life cannot be filled by anything other than the presence of God. Not by the right job, not by the right career, not by being married to the right person, not by being in the right city, not having your 2.6 kids and your golden retriever and your white picket fence and degrees and lifetime achievement awards. All of that is great. None of that fulfills why we exist. We exist for relationship, starting with God. And God wants to know us personally. Third, the conversion is God's work. It's necessary, it's personal, but it's God's work. And listen, to the, this is where we have to get really careful because churches and Christians can get really kind of manipulative if conversion's the goal of trying to force that and make it happen, right? I, 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 want, I want to tell you this. This is a, this is a story, and, and it's a story about an experience I had my senior year in college really quickly um, and when I say this, it's about an experience I had at a Billy Graham crusade. And I know that very real people came to faith through Billy Graham crusades, so I'm not in any way trying to take away from that. But my experience was that my senior year in college, and maybe this is part of being a Presbyterian-affiliated college, I had to take a religion course at some point. So I took one my first semester of my senior year, and part of the religion course was I had to go to a Billy Graham crusade that was in Charlotte, which is right near Davidson. And, uh, and so we went as a class, and we sat, and, uh, and somehow I managed to sit on like the end of the row where our class was sitting. We're all sitting in one row, and I'm on the very end. So I was like the only person sitting next to another person who was not a Davidson student. I didn't really speak to him. I just sort of said hi. But at the end of the crusade, when they invited people to come down and make a profession of faith, he stood up and he walked down to the front. I was like, that's really cool. I, I didn't, I, I wonder what happened there. Not because I was really curious myself, but because we were all getting graded on what we were going to write. And I had a chance to talk to somebody who had an experience and get a better grade than anybody else. And so I was like, I'm going to stay here and kind of talk to this guy because his family's still there when he came up, back up. And when he walked up, he, he sat there and I introduced myself and I said, I just, I'd love to understand like what just happened to you. Did you are you like a Christian now or is that what, like what happened? And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. I said, well, so why did you go down to the front? He goes, well, I'm from a local church, and we don't like to have, like, no one going down to the front. And so a bunch of us had already volunteered that when this happened, we would go walking down there as an encouragement to other people to come. And I remember sitting there going, oh, it was like, ooh, that is so, oh, that lived into every stereotype, right? Of, like, this kind of, like, we've got to, like, form the system and make this thing happen and create— 
And, and, and again, that's not to say that something couldn't have happened in that crusade, but it just lived into this idea, right? This stereotype of like how this stuff works. Saul didn't go seeking Jesus. He just went out doing what he was doing and God invaded his life. The person of Jesus invaded his life. And so we need to be open in praying for people and praying for people to come to know Jesus, not just learn good Christian values, but actually come to know Jesus. But we can't manipulate that. We can't force that. Conversion, changing someone's heart is something only God can do. And so while I can tell you, you can search your whole life defining life in your own reality, and you will always be left wanting more. I can't convince you of that by myself. In the end, that's something that God's going to have to work with you on. Lastly, and this, is, this is, has been so revolutionary for me to think about this, that conversion is continuous. When I first started seminary after coming to faith in Japan, um, I would tell people, because it was an unusual story of not being a part of the church for a long time and then coming to faith through this little house church in Japan, and, you know, it, it was a good, I don't know, I just, I would tell people that uh, in seminary. And finally, I had this one professor, Daryl Guter, who preached here a couple of years ago, um, who I didn't, I didn't uh, know very well, but he gave me one of the most loving corrections of all time. It's like, Thomas, you know, I hear you tell the story uh, of your conversion, and, and that's amazing, and that's wonderful, but you make the mistake, which many uh, evangelical Christians in this country do, which is to reduce being c- converted to a one-time event. He goes, that wasn't the finish line. That was the starting line for your life. It wasn't the goal. It wasn't the point of getting saved. That's the starting point for what God wants to do in your life. You know that the term born again, which we see in the Bible that is used so often in different segments of our culture, the term is Jesus talking to a Pharisee, Nicodemus, and he says that to inherit eternal life, you've got to be born again or born from above. We have reduced that to mean like a one-time event, like it's a secret handshake, right? Like, are you born again? Do you know the handshake? Do you not know the handshake? Are you in the club? Are you not in the club? Like, you know, which side of the fence are you on? Actually, that is a misunderstanding of that word. The verb to be born again, it actually means continuous action. So every time we talk about it like a one-time event, like it either is, you know, this or that, we reduce it. It does mean that moment of conversion, but it means that we have a lifetime of being continuously converted. And that's here in this passage. Saul is not the only person to be converted in this passage. I would argue with you that Ananias is converted at as deep of a level as Saul was here. Ananias is already a Christian, but his conversion is continuous because Ananias has his Christianity in a box. He's got it that it makes sense. He's been saved. He understands who Jesus is. Now he's got to sort of wait for heaven and, and, and Saul's coming and trying to persecute him and so he's in hiding. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears to Ananias and says, you actually need to go approach this guy Saul. There's a plan. I am sending you out with a purpose. And Ananias goes, no, no, no. That's not how this works. I've kind of got my faith and I kind of got how this works and I'm sort of staying safe now and protected. And the Lord's saying to Ananias, you need to go. You thought your life was about this and having your little faith and your way of doing things. No, I'm gonna convert your heart again to understanding that you're a part of something bigger, that you're part of a ministry that's bigger than what you think you can do, part of uh, ripping up your worldview and remaking it again in a more kingdom-oriented way. It is a conversion that is continuous, and Ananias' experiences just as much as Paul. 
But we've lost this in the church. We've lost the idea that every day, every single day that you and I should be waking up saying, Lord, what are you going to show me today? How are you going to break into my life today? What do you want to teach me today? How do you want to free me from the box that I placed you in and from the safe, normal life that I spend so much time trying to craft for myself? What's the unexpected thing that you're going to do just to break in and rearrange and convert my heart into something more beautiful than what I can imagine? We don't wake up, many of us, that day thinking like that. And I don't mean that like some sort of like cheap, cheesy, motivational speaker, like every day is going to be great. I don't mean that. I mean waking up even in the muck of life and saying, Lord, you are alive. What are you going to do in my heart and in my life today? A sense of expectation. We as human beings aren't good at holding on to that. We make things ordinary. We make things plain. We make them simple. I recently had somebody send me a, a video, some of you may have seen this, of a comedian named Louis C.K. who appeared on the Conan O'Brien late night show. Louis C.K. had this tiny little segment where he talked about that we live in a world where everything's amazing and nobody's happy. Everything's amazing and nobody's happy. Because these amazing things that exist in our world are just ordinary and we treat them as such. And the way, example he gives, one of the examples he gives is air travel. He says that air travel, you would think, is one of the worst experiences that anybody goes through in their life, right? He says, you know, that people sit there and talk about their travel schedule. It's like, oh, well, you know, you went on this trip and you went on this flight. How did it go? And they're like, it was terrible. We were 20 minutes late boarding the plane, 20 minutes late, and they didn't give us an explanation, and we just had to wait there, and then we get onto the plane, and they make us turn our devices off and, and put them in airplane mode, and we can't watch our movie, and then we sat there on the runway for 40 minutes. 40 minutes before we took off, and then we did, and the wireless internet didn't work, and it was just unbelievable. And he goes, and then what happens? Did you fly through the air like a bird? Like, <laughs> did you partake in the miracle of human flight? That you are thinking, he said, you're sitting in a chair in the sky. <laughs> he says, everybody on every flight audience is going, oh my gosh! Oh my gosh, this is amazing. And yet we just make it sound like this horrible thing that just things don't work and it's so difficult. We do that with our faith. We take this unbelievable adventure of walking with God, of waking up every day saying, what are you going to show me? What are you going to do? Just like with Ananias, convert my heart, change me, transform me. And we reduce it to teaching values to people and teaching rules to people, which is nothing that Jesus is about. We have taken the, the power and the, and the dynamism and the, the, the Holy Spirit's transformation and reduced it to, here's what it means to be a Christian and here's everybody else. And that is a complete denial of the power of our faith. All of us, all of us in this story as we read it are present here. Friends, some of you today approach this day like Saul in this passage. Maybe you've gone to church for a long time, but you have not opened your heart to the understanding that, that, that God is not looking for you to follow a bunch of Christian rules and to be a good part of an institution. That the person of Jesus is calling you to open your heart and to say, you are God and I am not, and I am tired of being a part of a story that's just about me. I want to be a part of something bigger and eternal and transformative that we need to open ourselves. And I want you to know if that's you today, you are welcome here, but I am praying for you that Jesus would invade your life because no matter what you're looking for, if that is not present, you will never find wholeness, shalom, peace, 
satisfaction. We are encouraging one another to follow Jesus. But many of us may come in here like Ananias, just as in need of conversion. Because we've got God in a system and we've got our life and we've got how it works and we've got safety and we've got security and we've got how everything works and God is looking at you today saying, no, conversion's continuous. No, it's not just about you having your faith and living your safe little life. No, this is so much better than that, but it is so much more challenging because I'm gonna call you again. You're gonna need to listen and have your heart changed and have your heart transformed to see that God is gonna send you out into life to change this world. And if we are not open to the experience of being converted continuously by God, then we're just going to be a value-teaching agency. No matter who you are today, God wants to change your heart. God wants to change your heart. May you be open to the call of the creator of the universe, the prince of peace, the lover of justice, to become a part of his people, his kingdom, his converted. May we do that together. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this day, whether we are more like Saul or more like Ananias, that you would break into our hearts, invade our lives. Hear our prayer as we ask that you would remove the chains that bind us to our way of living or our idea of what's right. May we loosen our hearts to listen for your cry, for your relationship, for your voice. And may that voice of love and grace Continue to break our hearts down and rearrange our worldviews as you see fit as kingdom people. We are called on an adventure of discipleship, an adventure of faith, an adventure of walking community. Meet us all here today and rearrange our lives so that they are explicitly centered around you. We pray for this. Pray for you to work now as you do, as you always have done. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.